Welcome to the State of Research podcast, brought to you by the Office of the Vice President for Research and KCSU, narrated and produced by me, Christian Ria, OVPR's digital specialist. OVPR's State of Research podcast was created to showcase our campus as one of the premier research institutions amongst American universities. Our office works to encourage and support the development, marketing, and application of CSU's intellectual property and our world-renowned researchers, students, and facilities. With this podcast, we hope to deconstruct the rationale that research is more than an analytical approach toward discovering new and enlightening answers to the complex and direct questions we ask ourselves. But it is also a journey filled with unique stories, individualized inspirations, and perseverance to solve global challenges. In our broadcast, we hope to create purposeful stories about innovation, inspiration, research, and the determination needed to propel our state of being toward the future. On this episode, I sit down with Mike Humphrey, an assistant professor in the Liberal Arts College here at Colorado State. Humphrey researches how life stories emerge on social media, as well as teaches digital storytelling and audience engagement and entrepreneurial journalism. As a recognized journalist and scholar at CSU, Humphrey has also contributed to a variety of publications. In the ever-changing landscape of digital media, I'm excited to sit down with both one of my mentors and good friends to discuss the evolution of social media, the current state of journalists, and the future of journalism, as well as touch on how VR and AR will change the way our culture communicates and shares our stories. Well, welcome to the show, Mike. How are the first couple of weeks of the semester going for you? You just recently became an assistant professor, correct? That's right. So, uh, yeah, it's been really interesting because in one sense, you know, I've been here almost eight years now, Mm -hmm. so this feels very much like home to me, but uh, being an assistant professor compared to being a PhD student or an instructor just, I think, sort of ties you into the community in a different way. Um, not in a more important way or not, you know, in a better way, but you just start to meet people differently, um, different people and, uh, and the expectations of what you do on campus switch enough that you notice. It's been mm-hmm. really fun. I've, I've really enjoyed it so far. That's awesome. How was your summer? Summer was uh, particularly busy. Yeah, I'm um, sure. You know, because I'm, uh, I'm finishing up a book about YouTube vloggers, uh, family vloggers on YouTube. And so I spent the entire summer writing that manuscript and I, I turned it in uh, in a few days. So so that was really kind of a, you know, overwhelming amount of my time uh, was doing that and teaching classes this summer. So it didn't feel like a, a normal summer to me. I didn't get outside as nearly as much. <laughs> I feel white and pasty <laughs> right now because of that. But yeah, it was a really, it was a, I learned a lot. It it was a really, um, it was fun to work that hard. And I've, you know, I've never written a book like this before. So I was, I was learning how to produce at a scholarly level that I had not done really, not even like the dissertation is the same as this. And uh, I really enjoyed it. It was, it was a lot of fun. So in the process of organizing this book, um, what is the title by the way? Uh, from fan to family. Interesting. What sort of avenue did you go down to kind of capture a story? Like what sort of elements of a story did you incorporate in this book? Yeah, it's a really good question because the book does turn out to be very narrative in a lot of ways. I follow two families uh, through both building these massive audiences, both of them well over a million. Now they're both over 5 million um, subscribers on YouTube. I follow them from the beginning um, because, you know, uh, on YouTube, the entire narrative is there. Like you see each video. And and one of the things we, we realized is that the um, it, it sort of accumulates into into this sort of mass narrative uh, that about, about both the the YouTubers themselves and their fan base and and um, I was looking for moments in that gigantic set of data 
that really um, marked certain important times. So obviously one of them is the beginning, like how they how they came into uh, the space in the first place. But then I started to look for transition points and, and eventually what I was leading to and the reason I picked the both families is they both had major disruptions in their life and I wanted to see how that affected their fans. And, uh, and so everything I chose was leading up to that moment, including what kind of narrative they were trying to tell about themselves and how the disruption changed that narrative. So how would you define storytelling from a general perspective? I think there's a couple of important elements to to storytelling that really matter in the way they affect audience. And I tend to think of it that way. One is that um, there's some organization in time. So time passes. It can be a matter of seconds, minutes, hours, days, months, years. And so I think time is a really important thing to pay attention to when you are telling a story, including how it compresses, how it expands. And then the other thing is tension. Like, I I think for, for a story to really have that sort of lift for the audience, there has to be something that we know the um, the protagonists want and what exactly is keeping them from that. And, you know, sometimes I taught, as you know, life story for a long time to mm-hmm. writers. And um, a lot of them don't see that tension in their own lives until they really start to look closely and see that, you know, there is a natural tension in our lives that we can always point to. And if you can... If you can narrativize around that, you really do, you do have the possibility of telling a story. In observing these families in their sort of real life and digital life, how have you seen their story evolve on a digital platform? Yeah, I think one of the the big differences that digital created, and especially um, digital as we know it right now, is that um, the family doesn't have complete control over their narrative. And, you know, we never really do, but but here you can see it right in the text. And what I mean by texts are like a video well with one video in it on YouTube. When you, you can watch the video, but um, other things around it are telling part of the story, including how important people thought it was. You can see that in the views. You can see that in the thumbs up versus thumbs downs. And you can see it in the comments. And the comments really contextualize what the video means. And that can change over time um, because a lot of uh, one of the most interesting findings was especially the most popular videos will continue to have comments running on them for years, years after they're posted. And sometimes they contextualize something that happened in the future back to those um, past videos and it changes the meaning of the video to some degree when you read those comments. And um, and that is a very different kind of experience than what we were used to in television and movies and even the stories we told each other, although it also does sort of relate to the way history and the brain's memory works. So it's, it's, it's a really, it's a very, I think digital has created a very dynamic kind of storytelling that's almost always communal in some way. It sounds like too, from this perspective of using the comments as part of the narrative, it contributes to being able to reflect, you know, as a storyteller and an individual that's receiving the story and being able to to jump back into the storyteller's perspective from the beginning and how it's changed over time and you know in the digital age like we are all contributors to someone's story uh-huh. and i think that that's very impactful and it's definitely has definitely changed the way we all tell stories, uh-huh. you know, in the digital space. Yeah, and and uh, and receive them too. Because the other thing you saw 
is, uh, you know, if a viewer met one of these families through YouTube at some point in their narrative, uh, so let me two years down the road or three, a lot of times they'll start going back to the beginning and watching everything up to the front. And we do that in TV too. But what's interesting is, uh, you know, that timeline is not just telling the, the the components of a story. It's it's telling the components of the lives lived. So you watch the children of the family um, grow up. You see them go from young to you know older. You see you see their houses change. You see um, because these people become so popular, they become wealthy. You know because you you know you can make a lot of money doing this if you have a big audience you see all those things change and you see how it changes their life and um and you know that's that's not something that's manipulated like that that's something that comes naturally through there's a lot that is manipulated but that sort of subtle symbolic growth that we're watching is just happening in their lives because of this channel and and so there's this uh there's sort of element of actually having an effect on their lives by being their fan and then seeing that effect and then going back and forth that you become you become part of the story. You're, you, you're not left out of it. Um, the fans actually matter in the story because the story wouldn't exist without them. In this era of, you know, social influencers and social influence in general, where have you seen um, social media sort of shift our culture and how we communicate and how we kind of tell our story in a digital space? I think that we are seeing, and, and this is, this was pretty predictable, I think we're seeing people get more and more savvy about how to uh, create their pers- their digital persona and tell um, the narratives that they want to tell. I think we are getting better at figuring out where the lines are um, and what public means in digital space. I think I think a lot of times people assumed a sort of privacy or a sort of friend circle in a place that actually is pretty easy to disperse publicly. So I think I think we're seeing that people getting savvier, which, you know, when you get savvier, uh, the what gets lost is authenticity a little bit. And I think that that lack of authenticity is the next thing to correct because it's going to take time you know we are we are learning to be citizens in a brand new kind of space and and what what it means to be a citizen in that space you know connects back to some degree to uh to our offline life but not completely and so we're we're still learning how to do this and i think right now we're in this correction phase where everybody's a little bit gun shy and about being authentic and um because it's you know probably hurt everybody a little bit at some point and some people a lot <laughs> Uh, you know, um, I think we're growing, but um, but the growth is going to be painful, and I, we are definitely in a phase in our in our digital era where that growth feels painful to a lot of people. Yeah, I've even experienced that in my sort of um, social media habits in being able to kind of reflect on how authentic am I trying to be on this platform, you know, and like right. what sort of narrative am I trying to create to people for people to see me as you know and like for me i've always tried to be an authentic person in real life and on in digital space and so i've seen the challenges of that you know because sometimes there are certain stories or certain things that i restrict myself from sharing because i don't want to negatively be impacted by the comments or you know negatively impact by an audience that I've engaged with that doesn't really align with what I'm trying to say. Exactly. And I feel like that's definitely a challenge for anyone using social media as a means to tell their story. Right. And, you know, I think it's important to note, and I always do, that these things are true in our in our offline lives as well. 
that we, um, you know, Irving Goffman's impression management um, concept comes from the 50s. We did this before we were online. We did, we've done this forever. Um, but we're so natural at it when we are, when we're having face-to-face conversations. We know how to manage the impression a lot. And we know when we fail, we know when we succeed. Um, part of it is just learning how to read cues in this, uh, in this digital world where the cues are so different and sometimes don't even exist. It's hard. And I, I really try very hard not to blame people too much for, for getting it wrong unless they're doing it for really nefarious reasons, because it, it's not easy to do this well yet. And, uh, and I do think it's important that if this space is going to exist, and it is, that we try to become good citizens, you know, and, and live good digital lives like the way we think about living good offline lives. Yeah, I totally agree. In what ways do you think our culture has kind of fallen short of using social media appropriately? I really think of it as sort of the car on the highway effect. There's a lot of good people driving cars on the highway who act like demons, <laughs> you know, because they uh, because they have this this sort of layer of protection between each other, and they 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 become just objects to each other a lot of the time. You don't think about the human being in the car; you just think about that car doing something you don't like. And I, I think we're sort of driving through the internet that way a lot of times. You see that in the discourse. Where, uh, where people really aren't treating others with the kind of respect they would if they were looking in each other's eyes. And, um, and you know, also this idea that it, it is both a platform for social life as well as a platform for economic life has really confused matters too. Um, it definitely did in YouTube. A lot of these family vloggers um, started, you know, just perform, just to just to have fun, just to be connected to people digitally. And then it became an economy, you know, um, what I call the love economy, like the economy where you are you're basically building a business out of the fact that so many people love you, you know, and, and want to support you. And that's fine. Like, I don't have a problem with that in itself. But as soon as economy comes into these kinds of relationships, it, it, it causes problems. I have a authenticity again and um and other things too manipulation and and like transparency and you know, there's a lot of issues that come with uh what i call the love economy obviously from this perspective you have witnessed so much change in our society and culture and how it functions in the digital space how have you sort of adapted or combated this change as an older individual mm-hmm. who has witnessed such rapid growth in communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I feel really fortunate because I feel like my life was split in half. Um, and at least from an observational point of view, it's, it's an amazing experience to have half your life be sort of non-digital and half really be driven by digital. And I think for my personal adaptation, um, I'm always, I always start everything in digital space as an observer. And then I eventually work my way in as an actor. And I just take a lot of time to pay attention to what it looks like, what its use is, whether it would be useful in my life. Um, and then whether I have anything to offer, you know, uh, I really also try very hard, like almost everything I have is not set to private. Everything I have is as public as possible, including my Facebook page, because, um, I don't ever want to live under the illusion that there is privacy in that space. And so I, I treat it all like a public space um, all the time. And if I'm going to say something, I, I think about the person who I don't know who might be looking at it and take them into consideration. They, this is somebody who might consume this information. Um, I think all those things help me do it in a way that's that's comfortable and not overbearing 
I don't think everybody cares about every detail of my life. Um, I think, but I do think people care about me and, and the people who are connected to me want to hear something from me now and then and vice versa. I wouldn't follow you if I didn't want to hear from you. You know, there's a limit to that. And I've shared a lot of really personal things in social media, but they're the kinds of things I would talk to on a plane with a stranger. And uh, a lot of people say, well, that's your most private thoughts. I don't, I don't think that's true, at least not for me. Um, I really do think about being public at all times on social media. And I think that and digital space in general. And I, I think that has has paid off pretty well for me, not necessarily in being a gigantic brand online, which I don't really need to be, but in making sure that I am I'm happy with what my digital persona would tell somebody if they decided to dive in. Yeah, from my perspective as an individual in the millennial generation, I've definitely been at the forefront of this, you know, social media phase mm-hmm. in this social media era and witnessing the changes from, you know, like to MySpace, Facebook, to mm-hmm. Twitter, YouTube, to all of these major social media influencing platforms um, and seeing how they've curated this space now, you know, and like for me, the biggest thing is being able to see and experience the accessibility of sharing things. And I think that that's one of the most beneficial things that social media has given us is just accessibility to information, mm-hmm. you know, and not even social media, but like the internet, mm-hmm. but right. even, but social media helps with, you know, individuals trying to plan a vacation or, you know, they want to have an insight on this product and they really want to know what an individual thinks about that. And like social media has that, yeah. you know, and definitely there are always good and bad intentions with that but as a user we need to be conscious of you know that curated content for those certain situations but also be reflective of how we're trying to communicate and deliver accessible information to other individuals like for me specifically i'm about self-development self-growth and like my sort of audience looks up to me to provide them information about how they could help themselves Mm -hmm. you know and work Mm -hmm. toward developing a better sort of view of their sort of personal growth right yeah i actually a name for this effect too um that we use in the book called mass siblinghood you know that that a lot of times what especially younger people are looking for are similar age maybe slightly older role models um people who can help them sort of navigate life and that can be you know that can be a really powerfully positive thing i've interviewed a lot of young people who who use social media that way and and it has had a big impact on their life but that accessibility question is is um important in two ways it also if if you think about accessibility on the internet as a fire hydrant giving you accessibility to water you know you have to have some kind of strategy for for that to actually work so if you just put your face in there it's it's going to it's going to be awful um <laughs> But on top of that, it's like a fire hydrant that is putting out water that would that would nourish you and water that wouldn't, you know, or actually even have a negative effect if you think about what information on the Internet can can be. And um, and this, again, I think goes back to growth. Like we just have to find the kinds of people we trust. And this is why I always tell my classes, my digital journalism classes, to think about building um, content that community can live around. You know, as a as as sort of like a water well in a community, things that we trust and that we know we can dip into and get our information in certain veins, and and that's um, and that's that's a good way to grow and a healthy way to grow as a both as a social media 
you know, personality or as a, as a journalism resource. Uh, think about building a community that trusts you and can come back to you many times to get that nourishment they need from an information point of view. Speaking of journalism, from that perspective, how have you witnessed in teaching and even in your professional career, how have you seen social media interfere with advocating, you know, the truth or advocating mm. substantial facts mm. to a greater audience? Where have you seen, you know, social media interfere or help progress that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, the interference is the fact that uh, it's a really beautiful idea that everybody has a voice, but that also means we don't necessarily suss out your intentions <laughs> before we give you a channel because the channel is as simple as signing up and, and going. We're starting to see some pushback on that. You see people like Alex Jones being pulled off basically every major social media site. That That is the, a major interference, and it's, it's oftentimes it doesn't even have anything to do with intention. It's just what you think you know that turns out to not be true is being spread and disseminated across the Internet, too. So journalists are constantly fighting um, perceptions of what's happening in the world versus what they are using their process of getting to the to hopefully to the bottom of something with the way they find facts um, is often being aggravated by the fact that some people take shortcuts uh, to that to that information. So it's sped things up a lot. Um, the crowd is not always wrong either. Sometimes the journalist is wrong and that confuses matters because they're, you know, we're all human. It's a very complicated time to, to build trust uh, when, when so many streams of information can be flowing through your life. And, and then on top of that, I think what, what happened in media was most media, like the great majority of media was local. At, at one point, um, pre, pre-digital. And one of the really big selling points of the digital life when we first got on is, you know, it gives you access to the world. And that's true. And that, that is a good thing in a lot of ways. But, but it, it sort of nationalized and sometimes globalized our media to the point where we're never really talking about where we live anymore. You know, one of the ways you built trust as a journalist is by being the neighbor of the people who consumed your media, you know, and, and you'd see them in grocery stores and they would know who you are. Believe me, I've been stopped in many grocery stores in my, in my time as a journalist. And, um, and that was a good thing. You know, there was a sort of accountability built right in cause it was the community you lived in. You were talking about, that's not true anymore. There's hundreds and hundreds of journalists who write about places they've never been every day. Um, you know, from, from web producing desks in New York city or LA or, you know, just somewhere there where they, they don't live. Uh, they're writing about these and about people they've never met and never even interviewed. And, you know, there's just so much disconnect from that embodiment, which is what we always thought of as community being first and foremost was I'm embodied in this place and that's sort of leaving. So how we get back to a sense of locality is an important step for journalism next, too, both in terms of supporting local journalism, which I'm a really, really big proponent of. I think local journalism is the most important journalism. What The New York Times does nationally is great, and it's important that that we cover our federal government. But we are spending so much time talking about the, the executive branch of the federal government that we are ignoring things that are happening in our own backyards that will have much greater effect over time than many of the decisions being made in, in Congress and, and in the president's office and things like that. Um, 
you know, theoretically anyway, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I really, I, I think one of the things we can do is go back and think, what are my local journalists doing? Do I know them? Do I trust them? Do I follow them on these social media sites? All that. Also, we need to create a digital locality, a sense of we can build community here, not around our preconceived notions of the truth, because that's just as dangerous as anything else, but around a sense of having a broad view of the, the world in, in trustable spaces where everybody is showing in some way that they have good intentions, if not being perfect, about getting to the facts of, of a story, of any given story, of any given, you know, um, topic. And both of those should feel like places to be. And I don't think we're there yet because digital disrupted this sort of in a global way. You know, I think I think we need to get back to, to like where are our bodies and where are our values and how do we find those places for us to be, not just because everybody else is there, but because it's right for us to be there. It sounds to me that your passion for journalism obviously extends in so many different facets of your identity and your sort of career. <laughs> um, where has that passion kind of resided in your research efforts for, you know, the book and, you know, your assistant professing yeah. position? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I, a lot of people look at my research and think that what does this have to do with journalism? And and um, it really goes back to an early portion of my journalistic career when I started to realize that the peop the things people were telling me that didn't make the paper were the more interesting stories a lot of times. Um, and that, that journalism is more than just producing news. It's actually about building community of narratives. And so I started teaching people in libraries how to write their own life story using a journalistic model. And that got me interested in the way people tell their life stories, the way they remember them. And then that led me into this digital space where all of a sudden we had all these tools to be doing this. Um, and and so like part of what building community is, is entering spaces digitally that that tells something about yourself that, that comes with a narrative that's attached to it. And, and, you know, broadly, you can call this persona. And um, and so my research looks at how people develop those persona and how their stories develop about their life in the digital space itself, which almost always refers back to their offline life in some way. And now I'm getting more and more interested in what's the connection there between online and offline. I think all those things matter because what I'm really talking about at the end of the day is digital citizenship and and um, entering a place, becoming your own identity, finding out who you are, showing that to the world, having the world sort of, you know, shape it to, through its reactions until you are a citizen in this digital world. And then what do you do? You know, how do you start to act? And some of what I research is are the ethics of that. Uh, like how, how much can you play with your identity and still be ethical versus uh, and how much of the world that you impact in digital space is your responsibility. Questions like that uh, follow up all the things I've I've looked at. And the way I've looked at it is the way we use language. So I've looked at the linguistics of self-telling, um, or sometimes it's referred to as life writing, although it's not always just writing. It can, it's obviously comes through video, it comes through audio, it comes through everything, you know, and the way we use language is an important indicator of the way we, we see the world and the way we shape our identities. Uh, so there's a lot of great research in that. And I've used that research as, and applied it to social media to, to see, you know, both the rhetorical strategies and the linguistic elements of what it means to shape a self and its story in a digital world. 
And, you know, how that relates, it's not obviously a relationship back to journalism. But first of all, all journalists have to do this, too. So that's one of the things I look at. You know, when you see a journalist in Twitter, for instance, they're, you know, often talking about the facts and maybe their own experience once in a while. Whether we actually take them seriously and whether we actually connect to them has a lot to do with that digital persona question, you know. And so what are they talking about beyond the facts or are they? And that says something about them. This is true with scientists too, another really important field when it comes to facts. How are they presenting their persona along with those facts? So Because that matters to people and what their narrative is, because uh, we have a, a rationality around narrative and we tend to believe things or not believe things based on that rationality, even if the facts don't always line up. And, and that's somewhat based on our bias too. There's a lot of people who know more about that than me, but all of that adds up to create a space in which we are trying to relate. And what I wanted to do was look at sort of the atom of that, you know, and, and say, well, what does the individual look like here and how does it form and how does a story attach itself to it? And that's what got me looking at all the different social media and, and this question of persona and life storytelling. Where do you predict from your research kind of where this persona online influencer sort of culture shifting toward like moving forward? Yeah. You know, I spent a lot of this summer uh, with an Oculus Go on my head <laughs> looking at some of the social media there because I really think, you know, I don't I, I'm not predicting that that will take over the world for social media. What I do think, though, is um, it really it really predicts some really important shifts in the way we communicate. So VR it, social media spaces are almost entirely real time. For instance, you don't go and look at texts and respond to them. You go and you interact with with avatars who, uh, for the most part, are dressed certain ways. Sometimes they reflect something real about a person. Sometimes they're bumblebees, literally, you know, um, f floating around. And and you know, and that's fine. But what what shocked me the first time I and scared me to be honest. The first time I walked into one of these virtual spaces uh, was hearing human voices talking to each other like a mixer at a party. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is real. You know, like it, it was it was really staggering the first time and it took me several times to not just leave right away because I was just so nervous about that. You know, then I found a space that I felt more comfortable in. It was a theater where you watch TV together and there's a moderator in the room sort of talking about it. So I watched this whole opera with an opera expert and we all, and when people would pop into the theater, they would sit next to you and you could see all the avatars in the theater seats uh, watching. And then they would talk, you could talk to each other and ask questions. And it was actually, for whatever reason, that made me feel more comfortable. And, and I was like, wow, this is really powerful. And I can see personas starting to build up around this, where your expertise, your passion about something just like YouTube um, would, would start to allow you to build a community around what you know and who you are. And, you know, the difference is, is it's, it's, um, synchronous, uh, you know, so like it, everybody has to be there together. And so there's like scheduling coming back. It's like at eight o'clock, we're going to have this movie and we're going to watch it together. Are there concerts going on now and, and talks and like book talks and stuff. And I think that that synchronicity, it gets closer to a face to face experience again. 
And I think we're going to have to learn how to how to navigate that next. You know, it's like, oh, my gosh, now, you know, my voice, that's my real voice. You know, unless I, I'm sure we're going to be able to modulate it. If, yeah, we already could. Probably. I think it also reintroduces the idea of being able to be a second self, which is something that was really important in the early Internet all the way up until right about the time Facebook became huge. And, and maybe that's good, too. But I think when we connect persona who are thinking themselves as a second self and then I'm allowing them to play with their identity, you know, at wide range with people who think of themselves connecting pretty closely to who their offline self is. When you mix all that together, that can cause problems. And I've done a paper about that, you know, about who you're trying to be. And, and so we'll have to work that out as well. And it probably will be even more intense because it's real time and what feels like real space. One of the things I noticed when I was going through this, by the way, all my memories are in that virtual space. Like all when I think about being there, I picture my avatar in that space. I don't picture myself with a, a goggles on. Hmm. And that is really powerful because yeah. that's my memories are mapping onto the virtual world as if I lived inside of that because I kind of did yeah. from a brain point of view. Um, and so it just shows you like the, just think about the impacts that alone will have. And it just means like we've it's always meant that we need to be careful with these tools and we're usually not. So those will be, those will be in your newspapers soon. <laughs> newspapers. Those will be, <laughs> they'll be on your phone pretty soon uh, about how we're not taking care with that. Of course, because that's part of the human condition as well. Yeah. As you're aware of the office of the vice president for research has this sort of initiative toward virtual reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have the Ram reality and the Ram hackathon that happens once a year, every fall semester. Mm-hmm. And I know that you'll you'll be a part of it this year, right? Yeah, we're going to do one of the trainings that leads up to the hackathon. Um, you know, because I, one one of the issues there's two issues around VR. One is all the technology behind it, and so um, a lot of different uh, organizations are, are or a lot of different departments on campus are working through those questions, including computer science. Um, and then there's the question of how to use it, like how do you tell stories with it inside of it? And uh, so we're gonna we're gonna do a, a you know VR storytelling um, training in the library in October. Uh, it's all part of that RAM reality and that and the hackathon leading up to it to, to really talk about that there's there's a component of VR that is about less about building the technology. And more about using the technology to tell stories that make people want to stay in the headset. And, you know, so from from a journalist's point of view, we're really using the camera. We're not we're not doing quite as much around um, computer generated graphics. You know, we're we're doing more about using the 360 cameras. And, you know, so how do, where do you place them? How do you how do you make sure that are you should you be part of the picture? Should you not? Should the camera move? What gives people a sense of motion? Because one of the really interesting problems in storytelling in VR is once you're in it, because you can move your head 360, you feel like you should be able to move. So how do you create the dynamic feeling of moving through a story and not just being stuck in one place, which you basically never thought about when you were watching it on a screen, right? Mm. So yeah, those are the kinds of things that we'll be dealing with there and hopefully leading up to this cross-conversation, which is what the hackathon should be between creators, technologists, um, designers, all the people who work together um, to uh, to build, to make VR a, a good space and, and 
And in conjunction with that, we're building a VR club on campus, uh, meeting with um, one of the computer science professors in a couple of days to uh, to talk about how we can join forces to create a VR club that would really mix disciplines and and have computer scientists and designers and storytellers sit together and and talk about uh, talk about how to really optimize this technology. Yeah, I think these conversations that you're going to have with these individuals will help sort of promote this initiative and also help create a space in this club for individuals with this interest to kind of collaborate and develop this sort of um, technology and experience. And that's what the Ram Hackathon is all about, is trying to bring all these people together from different backgrounds and interests like computer science biology, psychology, you know, even art and design. And I think that this is a huge opportunity for students to get involved in. Well, again, Mike, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate you being here and talking about your research as well as your experience in teaching students about the virtual space and the digital space and how important it is to critique it and important it is to evaluate it and how it could progressively help us in the long run. So yeah, I really appreciate your insight and everything that you've contributed to the show today. Well, thank you, Christian. I appreciate it. It was fun talk. And thanks to the Office of the Vice President of Research for for doing this podcast. I think it's really important that we hear each other's research and and share and, and maybe that will lead to collaborations that we could never have imagined if we'd stayed in our own little bubbles. So I appreciate this, uh, this whole concept in the first place. As mentioned in the show today, the Office of the Vice President for Research will be hosting our annual Mixed Reality Symposium, sponsored by HP, on Friday, October 19th. Following the symposium, the Create-a-thon, formerly known as the Hackathon, will begin and go through the weekend of the 22nd. During this weekend-long event, students will compete to develop their best mixed reality experiences in the Morgan Library. For more information about this event, visit our social platforms or our website to get all of the details. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. We look forward to exploring and sharing new resources research stories with you every other week. Check out OVPR's Facebook and Instagram at COLO State Research to hear about the latest research stories taking place at Colorado State and keep an eye out for announcements on these social platforms for all future State of Research podcast episodes. Special thanks to KCSU for giving us this platform to tell these stories, Mike Humphrey for being on the show and sharing his insights on the new age of digital storytelling, the evolving craft of journalism, and the new era of VR and AR experiences. And to all of you listeners for tuning in with us. Until next time, ciao.